Hi, my name is Angelo, and I've been working on podcasts with Miss Radio since last semester, in September. I had the idea of working on affordable housing and homelessness and stuck to the subject early on with help of my podcast co-host, Gabe Sanders, and it led to so many connections and stories in the Monterey community. So for today, we continue with our discussion on affordable housing with a key person who I think is vitally important to our community here in Monterey, a local and Middlebury Institute alum, Rafael Hernandez. We talked about his involvement at MISS and the origins of MISS Radio, his connection from research to direct impact in his local community. Rafael is the Housing Program Associate at Monterey Bay Economic Partnership, working closely with the City of Salinas and City of Monterey on creating new models of mixed methods housing, where the math works for tourism industry workers and farm workers alike to find affordable housing now with the new state funding being funneled into local budget systems. Not only models, but seeing out that the construction, implementation, and infrastructure is all set together to build homes in Salinas and outer parts of Monterey. The feasibility that Rafael envisions is part of a growing zeitgeist to build mutual kinship in an authentic way. I hope that his story from start to finish compels you and encourages you to connect with the people and the local organizations around you to uplift your community. The composition of each other, if we can fathom it, are just one grain of sand of a moment. Point is, if I see you and you see me and it's just one moment of our lifetime, you are still part of me and that holistic approach to seeing each other is important to creating empathy and creating a world of possibilities just in our local capacities alone. So thank you, Raphael, for your inspiring words. And without further ado, take it away, Angelo. So we got Angelo, he's on the go, don't you know? He hits the mic with questions and I spike with inflections that'll have you recite interesting refractions, reflections of your interactions with inflections inside your prophylactions. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. Get some people going. <laughs> and welcome back to another episode of Miss Radio Podcast. Dun, dun, dun. dun music or something? Dun. Oh, you know, we're working on it. We actually have Caitlin Shepard. She's got one of these things where... Oh, like bongo uh, drums type of thing? Something like that. It's it's wild. I mean, I, I can't wait for you to hear it, honestly. You know, but, all uh, the cool podcasts are doing it. They all have their intro songs. So we, Yeah, we got to get a theme <laughs> song going on. But, I mean, welcome welcome back to campus, man. Uh, Thank Rafael you. Rafael Hernandez, uh, Miss Alumni in the house with us, coming in from uh, MBEP. See. Si. MBEP. Uh, yeah, man, good to have you with us. Uh, just going to... Good to be here. Like, I'm back in this little booth that I used to record podcasts here with uh, George Payne, uh, DLC alum or D-Link alum. Uh, G. Payne, shout out. I'll send him a link to this so you can hear it. Um, and then what was I telling you earlier? He's the one that coined the phrase the D-Space. The D-Space, Downstairs, yeah. I think folks still calling it that. Is that what they call it? Someone said, we call it the D-Space now. I think I was like, oh, sorry. And they called it the design space. So I said, well, we call it the D space. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, the origin stories, man. Um, yeah, so we had you here back in... Uh, 
2013 to 2015. 2013 to 2015. Yeah. Wow. And Not too you... long ago, but... <laughs> <laughs> what were you studying out here? MPA, DPP. Well, when I first came, it was... Miss was Monterey Institute of International Studies. And when I graduated, it was the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Right. And during that time, too, the... Um, what is it? IPD, MPA, MIX... Uh, to produce DPP, that process was going on. And I, I was the MPA coordinator um, during that time. It's two semesters, and I was involved in that process. They had a lot of, you know, uh, I guess like town halls, but on campus. Oh. And, and then I would meet with a lot of the, uh, with the uh, IPD, MPA uh, faculty and staff and all the discussions. So I don't know how that stands now, because you're not involved with those uh, departments, are you? Right. Um, so we're still in GSIPM. Um, MBA, or MPA, rather. Um, that'd be my other colleague, Gabe Sanders. Uh, he's in that program. Well, get him out here. Yeah. <laughs> Gabe, where you at? <laughs> he's in Sonoma, ah. kicking it old school with his, with his parents, oh. uh, getting in a good weekend. But um, Nice. Yeah, so... Um, I think they still do the town halls over there. I know there's still involvement with student council. Um, I'm trying to set up a meeting with them uh, for some initiatives going forward just for the school. Cool. A lot, lot happening on campus, uh, just changing of the guard with, uh, with certain programs. And uh, this is constantly changing as, as it was back in, back in the day for you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I know that you also have a deep connection with the school with starting this podcast, um, which is, which is, yeah, if you want to. Uh, what was it? So George, again, George Payne, D Payne, G Payne, uh, he saw, he wanted to resurrect Miss Radio. And I believe he really revamped it online. And, and he started doing these uh, things called, uh, sorry, George, something like, Professor Bites or Miss Bites, and there are these quick 15-minute or five-minute interviews with different professors and faculties, and I hope they're still online. And then he and I would just do random podcasts just on whatever was on our mind, and often it turned into a, a freestyle, free-flow association rhyming thing because the we had started, when I got here, I thought, I want to do some hip-hop open mic type of show. And he overheard me, and so I, rec I recruited him. I'm like, okay, we're going to do it. Because I, I heard him. Uh, we both did Silp, summer of 2013. And Silp has a talent show every summer at the end of the session. I He was studying Arabic. I was studying Japanese, which unfortunately I hear they don't teach here anymore. Ah, heartbreak, but that's another show. <laughs> and... For one of his performances, he he did a, a poem, a flow, and it was it was yeah, it was dope. It was a, he just I connected with it. I thought, okay, I'm gonna be his friend. Yeah. I don't know what he thinks about it, but I, I already decided. So he's <laughs> gonna be my friend, one way or the other. And then uh, we put on this. Uh, it was a good vibes. I remember we were trying to think what to call it, and um, it was uh, just like, hey, uh, I think. We, Everything we're doing seems like we want to just promote good vibes mm -hmm. in the in the atmosphere in the campus and the community. And I said, "Yeah, that's 
from being socially, politically conscious to being technical, to being a geek, to being, uh, you know, about things and, to, you know, whatever, musical, inclusive, academic, uh, whatever it is, but on a positive plane. And he said, well, let's call it that. I could call it what? Well, good vibes. So we started calling it, you know, good vibes, open mics. And we would do two shows a semester. We had a DJ, Dialogic. He was studying here. Um, I always forget his the department that he was in, the, the program, because it's like a technical language something. I forget. Sorry, Dialogic. And uh, so he had vinyl. So we had DJ, we had mics, and then later on, David, David, spasmatic, b-boy extraordinaire, joined uh, the Good Vibes crew, and we still we still flow, we still um, jam, and uh, are connected, and keep producing music and rhymes. But whenever, so whenever George and I would do a podcast, it was inevitable that we would just start messing around with topics and words like turds flip them around take them around town bring them back invent the sound slap haptic feedback eliminate the crap the right of tat tat exactly there you go see playing along so that's uh when i'm in here i just can't help but feel the the good vibes from the past and i i know you're keeping it going too so. oh yeah i mean i've been here this is my second semester and it was honestly a thrill to be able to enter this space, and for whatever for whatever reason, uh, something indicated to me uh, when I first entered in here in the it's now like DLC or D Link, but um, this space, this environment, was able to uh, comfort me and, and like bring me to where I could just genuinely have a space where I could be myself. You know, I can express, and there's something about that needs to be said. To, to create environments and spaces to where people can express themselves mm -hmm. and to create uh, those types of environment is it's critical you know as, as we're talking about affordable housing and you know uh, having that 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 luxury of you know shelter you know yes uh, it's such a critical moment in time and uh, you know to be able to sort of think uh, not only internationally you know being at the school one thing that we had talked about um, when we first met was, you know, Monterey Institute of International Studies, Middlebury Institute of International Studies is a school that focuses on international issues while also, you know, we find a way to also be in tune to what's happening locally. Um, so I know you had several research projects going on when you were a student here. Um, you also uh, worked here at the DLC and you were just very prolific with your time here in such a short span and uh, I was wondering if you could speak on you know uh, just sort of how did that spur you towards the direction of wanting to work local yeah man that's a by the way great segue <laughs> because uh, I had the same experience the first minute I stepped into the DLC into this room right here I felt exactly what you felt and I, I still think I'm seeing what I thought then. I'm seeing that it's true now. This is by far the coolest place on campus. It's not to denigrate other spaces, but this is just the best place in so many ways. And that I like that you thought of the idea of shelter, of feeling safe, safe from the elements physically, but, it's, you know, a home is more than 
house does that home does something else and with housing you know the project the days of the projects where they would just build give them four walls and a roof and concrete and you have you know kids growing up families living and when we hear the projects we have this image of you know just negative things violence etc and they built without thinking of public spaces without thinking of well people don't just need food and roof and walls you know we're social creatures we need spaces to to commune and uh things that everyone um a lot of people take for granted because you, you just assume that well of course i'm going to have a park and green greenery and, and fresh produce within you know a half a mile at least walkable distance and all these things uh so shelter means more than the physical obviously the physical structure the dlc provided that affordable housing now has evolved but there's a lot of uh, i just came from an interesting meeting this morning um i'll talk about it in a, a little bit later on that addresses the the different uh challenges about for private developers and the industry to develop housing that is not just four walls and a roof but can meet all the standards that are mandated by state law but then there's county and city uh, requirements and how much they have to charge given the land value in California or something out here in the peninsula for example to what rent do they charge so they get a return on their investment and essentially the conversation this morning was with the way the jurisdictions are written now uh, to address the city's or the county's general plan, you can't do it. Um, let me bring, let me rewind a little bit. We'll get on those details later, but to bring it to your question now about how MISS and the work I did here, uh, international to local, that connection. Um, when I got here, like most of you guys out there listening, and um, I, I'm not sure like if you, Angelo, but I know a lot of students here, we get come here, we do a two-year two stop, look, and listen, and boom, we're off to some other continent or DC at the closest, right? Usually that's a lot of, you know, we're thinking international studies. I want to do policy work internationally. I want to do trade deals, the terrorism, da, 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 all this stuff. I, when I was here, I took advantage of as many opportunities to travel abroad as I could. So I went to, um, with the Andean Alliance, there, um, the founders are Miss Alam doing this great program out in El Valle Sagrado, Sacred Valley in the Andes in Peru. Um, went there, went to Cuba with uh, Jan Black, Professor Jan Black, uh, went to Uganda with Beryl, uh, doing DPMI there, um, went to uh, Beijing and Tokyo. So in my two years here, I was just you know trying to hit everything I could internationally. And as I was doing that, all roads led me to here. To, uh, I'm working in Salinas and then from Salinas to the region. And one of the things that I started realizing more clearly as I was going to these different places was the local, we go to learn the local context. And, you know, in a generic sense, um, not meaning to simplify people's reasonings or intentions, but in a very generic way, we go, I want to go and help bring, you know, help communities. I want to help local communities. Uh, they need water, sewage system, infrastructure, uh, educational programs, you know, on and on and on. Great stuff. Uh, Frontier Market Scouts does great things. I, I, I did that fellowship too, um, with the triple bottom line of you know profits, people, environment, uh, which I really uh, 
that's where I feel a lot of innovation can happen. The thing that I started to see was a lot of the folks in these localities, whatever continent it was that I was at, they always ask you, so tell me about, they don't really say about, tell me about America. Everyone knows about America, USA. Everyone knows the teams, all that stuff. They want to know about, tell me about your local government, your neighborhood. And I started thinking about how many people you know, go to local council meetings, do local things. I mean, a lot too, but I think in general, and especially coming to MISS, where our eyes are on a macro level often, and we're looking beyond the horizon. And, you know, especially if you came to Monterey from somewhere else, you maybe not, you know, you don't have a lot of time or opportunity to learn about the locality here. But, and even places where we grow up, I think a lot of us might not feel so connected to local government. But the folks over there, I just started thinking that, geez, here I am thinking I can help or wanting to learn about how to help, how to, you know, contribute to this locality. But do I know what's up with my locality? And can I support and serve, you know, with what's within my arm's reach? You know, and it's always like that thing, right? You want to help, you want to know others, got to know yourself. And Bruce Lee talks about how all knowledge ultimately becomes self-knowledge. And so I, that's how what I mean by everywhere I went, everything just brought me deeper to where I was here. And when I graduated, I thought, you know what? You know where I want to go after I did all these, you know, for international excursions? I want to go to Salinas. I wanted to go work here. I want to work in this area. And I'm I'm a California kid, but I'm not from this area. I was always big city. I'd go back to Los Angeles or go at least to the SF Bay area, um, which is, you know, a little bit more urban. Are you from and, LA? Yeah, I'm from Los Angeles originally. I lived in different parts of Southern California. Then I went to uh, Berkeley. And that's what's connected me to the SF Bay area. Um, then I went back to to LA, worked there, worked in the film industry for a few years. Um, and then I went to Japan. And then I came back to Los Angeles, did different things. And then I came to, found out about Miss. And I never really knew about the Central Coast. I mean, I knew it was here. Monterey, like Jimi Hendrix has some, there's a great show that he did in Monterey, uh, what is it, Monterey Rock Festival, Monterey? Not the oh, jazz festival, but yeah, the, that classic festival. And yeah, Otis Redding. Yes. There. Yeah. So that's what that's how Monterey is in my head, or or it's Monterrey from Mexico. Uh, yes. But uh, <laughs> so I thought, gosh, I totally missed this whole section of California that's here, and there's right. stuff going on here. And uh, to kind of wrap up this long answer to your question, um, mm, mm -mm. the work I'm doing now, uh, a lot of the work I'm doing is with. Uh, the Farm Worker Housing Study Action Plan. And MBEP was tasked with getting that implemented, getting um, helping facilitate the implementation of that plan. So I'm working with the City of Salinas staff to convene subcommittees. And I can talk about details. I can talk about those details as well. But that's really exciting um, to see more. Um, the stuff that I'm, everything I learned in MPA and DPP and in the, here at the DLC, D-Link, and every single ounce of every class, I'm using it. So all those, one thing I want to do coming back to you guys over here is to help bridge the connection between your courses and work. Because I was here, like you guys are, 
and I've gone out there working and I'm thinking, how do you teach, like what of my classes applies directly, right. what doesn't, and how can you teach what's, what would help you, you know, to direct a program, a nonprofit or whatever. Um, how do you teach that in a course here, given the semester system and the, you know, the infrastructure, the, the format of, of a grad school program like this one? Right. I mean, it, it's interesting uh, the minute you bring that last point up, because for me as a student, that there is a sense of cloudiness or opaqueness that comes with being a student and like, okay, what am I going to be able to apply here in the real world? Um, and it's like, there's a line from Kendrick Lamar that I absolutely love. And every now and again, it applies um, to where like, you know, I know I'm intelligent. My confidence just died, you know? So mm. like sometimes you get a slice of a humble pie, whether it be your financial situation, whether it be um, just worrying about things that may not be uh, significant, you know, in the moment, you know, but it overwhelms your, your brain. So, I mean, to look at your track and, and where you've bobbed and weaved all throughout your life and to, to, to culminate into, you know, every ounce of knowledge that you bring to the table uh, has brought you to the immediate sector of your life here now working with folks in Salinas is incredible. Uh, that's, that's, that's a true testament of just getting down and dirty with, you know, the work that needs to be done. And I mean, I, before we go forward, I mean, that, that keep on doing what you're doing. Right. <laughs> we need, we need more Raphael's in the world. Gracias. Uh, and, you know, to see, I was talking to a gentleman who's in the MPTS program uh, last night. Um, we're actually doing this East Asian practicum, and we're going to Beijing and oh, Tokyo. cool. Are you uh, going with uh, Tsuneo and... Uh, and Liang, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, I'm going to so, join you guys again. That was like oh, the man. coolest trip. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing that in about a month from now on the spring break. So, nice. um, you know, I've never been to that area, and uh, I was talking to this guy, and we sort of were talking about, you know, what we're going to do after we graduate, and he brought up D.C. I told him that I was interested in um, potentiality to be a staff staffer uh, on the Hill, and um, he was like, well, um, we started talking about the Farm Bill and uh, the local Congressman Panetta, and he was mentioning how there's this link, there's this link between farmers and affordable housing because I was bringing up you know the concept series that we had last semester on mm. affordable housing and homelessness in this area and he was like you know there is a link that needs to be I think drawn out much more in depth when it comes to creating public policy that you know who are we servicing what avenues could we take and you know you bring up a valid point with you know looking at the farm workers within our area and uh, the necessity to build homes uh, for those folks. One thing that you can uh, probably, when you go to Beijing and, and then other things, um, when you're looking at land and property, well, okay, there's a book called In Defense of Housing, and that gives a, a great analysis, uh, historical analysis that leads up to the current situation of uh, looking at land as 
property where real estate, you know, then I guess basically it's like commodifying land and then the value of a land becomes, you know, you put a price on it and then that context then leads to, I mean, um, it's good to read the book. That's kind of academic and uh, informs the way policy is developed because a lot of it has to do with framing. So that that's, mm -hmm. I think, one of the big things that that book does, um, how we frame things. So we just want to look how things are framed so that if you're having a debate, you don't take for granted the framing. You know, for example, I mean, to do something very generic, but like if I say, okay, Angelo, so I see that you're doing work uh, over here, um, helping, I'm just making stuff up, like in the homeless community, and you're trying to bring um, not only uh, shelter, but some services like uh, case caseworkers to help assess people's you know mental health and maybe a job development because the situation that they in they're in is um, obviously dire and they need they need the support so uh, the system doesn't seem to be working for them so and you want to help them so tell me why do you hate the system and um, and what is it that you have against America right so I mean that's a very extreme thing but you, frame, see, yeah. you see what I did I kind of just like step 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 and so now you just Fox News me oh <laughs> I guess yeah Tell us why do you hate America? But yeah. I, I couldn't think of a, a more subtle one. But just to get the point across, framing uh, is very important. Right. So when you go someplace with the farm worker housing study, I, an action plan, there was four areas that they looked at, and I think these are the four areas that you can think about uh, in other places, in classes or and whatever work you do that has to do with construction, whether it's commercial or residential. Four areas are. Suitable sites, that's the first one. Uh, second one, and these aren't in any particular order. Housing types, financing, and regulatory reform. Hmm. So then they all work, they all work with each other. Those are the four areas that the, all the data that was collected, all the interviews from the farm worker housing study. It was a big study sponsored by different jurisdictions and organizations, like $400,000. Yeah. Um, this was all in Salinas? It was, it was in the Pajaro and Salinas Valley. So okay. Santa Cruz and Monterey County. And it was uh, the, the counties and different jurisdictions and, and, and ag. MBEP was, uh, was also uh, helped sponsor some of it. Um, and now we're involved in getting it uh, implemented. The action plan, there's you know like a ton of steps in these four categories. So to look at a situation you can think okay what's a suitable site um, for example one of the things that we're working with uh, the Salinas City has a GIS mapping team so they created this online tool that you know it's like a tool where you it has a map and you can click on uh, different criteria and then it'll map it like what's a county zoning city zoning floodplain zoning uh, something called like uh, Williamson Act parcels um, you know what's commercial etc like just a bunch of criteria right. and then you can just click and layer and then it'll be it's a great tool to find out what are suitable sites for what kind of you know construction and then in that construction what kind of housing type would work uh, with farm workers you have two basic categories of workers you have permanent families of folks that live here and that's and they work in agriculture uh, farm workers and then you have temporary workers that are brought in through like the H-2A visa, temporary visa, because there's a labor shortage. So 
big agricultural companies um, have, you know, they get workers, mainly they're from Mexico, um, and they come through the special visa, they work a few months, and then they go back. So to house families versus temporary workers, you have very different situations. If you hire H-2A workers, you're um, obligated to provide housing for them. So if you think, well, I'm bringing workers for a few months of the year, and they're just coming as single adults, a dorm-like type of structure would work. Mixed methods type. Yes, exactly. But for a family, yet mom, father, or whatever, two you know, two adults and kids, that's not going to work. They you don't know. Want that. Well, yeah, it's not. You know, you have a bathroom that's maybe a common bathroom, or just it's not the same housing that would work for a family, right. and for families that are you know live here and they're, you know year round. So then you want to think about that kind of housing type, or you know, apartments, duplex, you know, quadruplex, all that stuff. Uh, how many stories or single-family units, condos. I mean, so all these things with each different type of housing, there's different fees and different considerations and construction, etc. And also the the amount of density and how is how it's uh, the area is zoned. Does it allow for that density or does it require more? And you know, on and on. Not to get too too technical about it. Financing. I mean. At financing, right? I can go into some of those details, but you know, it speaks for itself. How do you finance uh, a development? Because there are three phases of financing there's the preparation, like getting permits or securing permits, securing a, a piece of property, acquiring it. Um, then there's the construction. Then you, you know, you got all that, all the paperwork done, and that could take forever. Then you have to build the thing. Then after that, there's operations, maintenance of it. So those are three phases of financing, each with its own ecosystem or whatever system of plethora and menu of considerations, obstacles, and regulations and all that. Um, and then regulatory reform. Do the laws permit for housing to work? Are the pro you know propositions, there's a couple propositions that passed. Um, Recently, housing ones, Prop 1 and 2, that are going to bring up to $6 billion of funding for um, housing. Prop um, 1 and 2. Prop 1 and 2 from uh, veterans to farm worker, you know, um, low income uh, and homeless um, housing. So those are how, I mean, in a very sort of broad brushstroke, how these four areas and those uh, are work working, together. Those are working with uh, the public dollars. So do we see any sort of... Uh, private financiers uh, that are going into such operations of potentially building housing? Yeah, I mean, so you have um, nonprofit developers right. like Chispa or MidPen, Eden Housing. Um, you know, there's a few uh, big ones. The Veteran Transition Center. The Veteran Transition Center um, also, yeah, does. Uh, they, they were speaking at this uh, town hall uh, two nights ago. Was it? Yeah, it was um, Wednesday, I think, here in Seaside. And then there's the you know for-profit developers, private. Now the meeting I was at this morning at the county uh, in Salinas, but that's where they have the county office. Um, we had people from the nonprofit and for-profit developers, county staff. I was there. Um, other folks uh, from uh, different jurisdictions, from Marina, from Castroville. And uh, in Monterey, and in a nutshell, 
the discussion basically said um, that you can't, the way the, what they wanted to talk about is the new inclusionary housing requirements in the plan that's going to be adopted by the county, does it impede the development of affordable housing? In a sense, does it create requirements that make it difficult or create, create disincentives or make it not economically feasible for a private or for any, any developer to build? Meaning, I can't make money, I'm going to lose money, or the process takes too long, and hence nothing's getting built. The reason is because nothing has been built and nothing's being built for so long. Right. So a lot of the conversation had to do with the way the system, the way the laws are written now, yeah. um, to satisfy the general plan of the county, it just doesn't work. It's not doesn't make it affordable for um, for developers to build something and then include affordable housing in their unit. Like if you say, let's say you have fifty units and fifteen percent of it have to be at an affordable housing rate. You know, they get their money back from the rent. Right. Um, if they can't charge enough rent to fill that to get their money back, then they're, you know, they just, they, the math doesn't work. We're not going to build, you know, meaning if we charge more than the only people that could live there, no one here could live there. And if we build houses and charge it at the price we need to make our money back, then it's only going to be people from Silicon Valley coming in and buying a second home or, or those that make a lot but still for over there because things are so expensive they'd rather pay this prices over here and commute but we still have the people here that haven't gotten any new housing right that's the you know the big part of the conversation would you argue that that's happening uh, or the changes that could be made would be on a regulatory basis to maybe because it seems as if um, there's there can be an argument for you know pro nimby you know type uh, legislation that is, you know, in the books right now, that is making it economically not feasible, you know, for for you know construction to be going down. You know, you have a lot of things that are coming at it, and here's the thing: when I hear developers saying the math doesn't work, we have to make the math work, and they're looking at the county to say you're, you know, you're adding these requirements that simply get in the way of us being able to produce anything and you're just going to lose builders or just going to go build somewhere else out of state. I, I think about, yes, that's a good point about the math not working, but we have to look at the math holistically. The math doesn't work for uh, investors. Uh, well, it doesn't work for investors, but it doesn't work for the people that live and work in the place, for the, the server, the nurse, the teacher, the farm worker. They, their math with their wages and the cost of living doesn't work for them either. And the county has, a, there's a difference between requirements and obligations. And how you look at both, I think, makes a difference. It's framing. If you think, well, these requirements are getting in the way. It's like uh, in sports or something, say these rules are sort of impeding us being able to score well. Just change the rules, get rid of this requirement. Don't require... Like the shot clock in basketball requires you take a shot within a certain amount of time. So that's like a requirement. And you can say, well, we can always change that. It just seemed like, for what reason is it there? And there's reasons for it, right? But you can just think, well, that's a requirement. But an obligation, that's a different way to frame something. It's 
not something you can say, well, let's just adjust the obligation or just get rid of that obligation. An obligation yeah, has a different... Yeah, just clean the situation. Yeah, so the, the reason why I say that is because every jurisdiction has a regional housing uh, needs assessment obligations. Those are called RENA obligations. Um, based on, you know, it came from studies as the state decided, based on the need, you need to produce this much, this many units. And it breaks it down to this many at market rate, this many at... This level of affordability, this this for low for moderate, there's workforce moderate, low, very low, very very low income, and it gives numbers for each of those categories. And are we meeting those? No, at, no one's meeting them. No jurisdiction is meeting them at all. Everyone's way behind, and those numbers are also not reflective of the need. Those numbers are a past need, and every year it it goes higher. So those numbers. Um, were from I believe 2017. Um, it was like five years from 2017. So um, those numbers are like a minimal number that doesn't reflect the, the actual need. Right. And we're not meeting those at all. Everyone's behind. So now what Gavin said, the new governor, he said that he's going to withhold possibly SB1, you know, transportation tax funds to jurisdictions. Basically, it's like, um, I always tell people, it's like a, a parent has a bunch of kids and each one's responsible for taking care of her room. Um, you know, take out your trash, do your bed, blah, 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 etc. So those are the jurisdictions in California and California uh, governor or government, right? Sacramento is uh, the parent. And after a few months, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to leave you on your own to figure it out, right? We got, and, we've got the funds. We've passed Prop 1 and 2. <laughs> yeah, well, now, now, we, now we do. But yeah, yeah uh, well, it'll help. It's not going to, you know, there's no magic bullet in this one. But I always tell people, what do you do? What does a parent do when you come back after a while and none of your kids have, the kids that haven't cleaned up, what do you do? You're like, okay, I gave you kids plenty of time to do your chores. Okay, give me the cell phone. No allowance for you. Okay, no more, you know, right? You start to dish out punishments and take away the, the perks. So it seems like the governor is now saying that, kind of, I'm going to withhold from communities some of your SB1 tax, the things that you were like, oh, now we can get that extra whatever. Revenue. Yeah, revenue from from the that tax. The you know he started. He said I think in a recent thing that um, and people were expecting this. You know, basically like okay, no, I'm gonna cut your allowance in half or give me your cell phone kind of thing. Mm. Um, and there's always gonna be pushback from local jurisdictions to say like this is big government coming in. Another way to frame it would be you know the government's like we left you to your own devices, and. You're not figuring it out. So, and we need this. So, you had your time. Now we have to do something. Now we can critique that. That's one thing. How I look at it is, it, if it's going to happen, we have to deal with that. Right. And cities and counties and private industry, as well as nonprofit industries, have to figure out a way to make this work and get get housing constructed. Uh, and that's where we are. And it's so hard now. The nimbyism you talked about is people that. Like in Monterey, they say there's like a rural feel here. So people want to keep that feeling of a small town. So when someone proposes anything above two stories, it's like, no, no, we don't want to become like Oakland. We don't want to become like, that's them. This is, we're different. We're, this is a smaller town, you know, and all that. But you still have the need to house people. And if you build outward like sprawl, there's only so far we can go horizontally. Right. You know, whereas vertically, you can pay a certain amount for a parcel but utilize all this vertical space and you know make up for you know collect more rent there make up for for um your other fees 
Now, there's also more expenses building up, and there's a lot of details there that I'm not an expert on, but you know, I'm putting out the basic categories to say it's it can be convoluted, it can be very out there. And then there's also infrastructure. People say, well, just build out out there. There's all this land out in the outskirts of the county, the unincorporated areas out there. Um, yeah, but you need infrastructure because if it's sewage lines and water lines. Right. I had a buddy of mine. He was uh, costs a lot of money. He yeah. was bringing up uh, uh, a point. Gabe Sanders, my co-host. Uh, wanted me really to ask this question about water supply and how um, how is MBEP or, or anyone really is facing the reality of a restrictive water supply, talking about infrastructure building, and if you could offer a sort of take on the possibilities of a desal plant and um, how, it, how that might uh, work for the Monterey area. Yeah. That, no, that's good. So we're seeing callers. Okay, the caller <laughs> came in with a great question. Yeah. By the way, I hope we didn't lose half the audience. I'm hoping to get so technical and sleepy. Um, hey, I should have explained all of that in a rhyme. Oh, right. That, that would have been a, a hell of a feat, and I don't know if possible. But how do you rhyme? Um, yeah, arena obligations, tax credits, with uh, the life and cost inflations and What's a word that runs with credits? Credit. Full credit. Housing merits of. <laughs> on the blue mic, you wouldn't want to take another psych. Oh, we're on the recording. Okay, back at it. We are in the recording. Desalination plant. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if that's even you know, uh, I know Calam, they were approved for like a three hundred ninety-eight million dollar project or some sort. Um, yeah, but you know, uh, I don't know if if you or end up now. I I'm not an expert on this. I'm 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 a student of it right now. Um, water, of course, is a big topic for construction. Sewage and water are like the two biggest uh, in terms of infrastructure. Two biggest obstacles. Um, to well, I mean, they're two of the big obstacles. To find, then there's transportation issues as well, depending on where you are in the city. That's why we promote infill, like where there's already uh, infrastructure. And I'll talk about uh, ADUs, accessory dwelling units, uh, a little bit in a minute about how um, we can maximize what we already have, the existing space that we have, as well as building new. But with water, you know, you have ag, and you have the hospitality industries. Both use a lot of water. Ag's always been prioritized, but you think of, you know, hotels, motels, all the washing they do. Mm -hmm. So when you think of, we hear talk about farm workers, but a lot of it, I look at the workers that also work in these hotels and... And they're living like and they're living, really out of town. They're totally out of town commuting to, yeah, work at the hotels. When it comes to the math not working, uh, to you know, reference what we were earlier talking about. What about their math? The the numbers of their mileage coming in here for how much they're paid, but the math of we need them because tourism is a huge thing here. Hotels, who's going to work in them? So that math matters too. The number of people you need for the number of tourism and the money that's comes from tourism. The mileage that the workers have to travel. How much money that costs? There's all these numbers and all that plus their kids, their livelihood and, you know, happiness and health and all that. So 
those the math is not just financing a spreadsheet from a business plan of a developer. Everyone's in the math. Right. Um, everyone's uh, everyone's math has to work out. So um, it's equivalence value, you know, of the stakeholders involved. Nice, nice, exactly. <laughs> and that's something I, I want to learn from you uh, more about. With with water, I don't. There's water credits that have to be. So I don't want to speak on this too much because I'm not an expert, and I know I know where to look up some things, which is my first step in, in learning. I'm like, okay, well at least I know where to go and who to go to oh, to yeah. get some of this information. So step one, grad school life. That's yeah, <laughs> that's right. the first lesson. And then after that, okay, then get it onto wherever it's needed, and then eventually, hopefully, it becomes part of your knowledge bank. Um, but he wanted to know how that works or how it impacts housing development. Right, because I mean, one thing that we had spoken to um, uh, Tyler Williamson about, mm. uh, something that he prioritized much more uh, deeper than, than just affordable housing, is the infra infrastructure, is being able to uh, lay that, you know, pipe work uh, to, to create that linkage because um, you need water mm. running through these, yes. these, these affordable homes. Um, so, you know, Seeing the interconnections between those two avenues and like how MBEP, you know, uh, uh, plays a role in, in these funding developments. Um, the way we work, well, first of all, Tyler Williamson, shout out to him, congratulations. He, he won city council. Um, he's a, a buddy of mine. Now, I met him um, last year and I was excited when I heard him talk and I was excited at the prospects of him being on the city council and now he is. so. Um, I'm, ex you know, expecting uh, a lot of great things from him just based on his passion and the way he frames things and everything he talked about. And he won with huge numbers, so that's also great. Um, but I remember the talk about the desalinization plants. When I was a student here, I took uh, Alfredo's, Alfredo Ortiz, Dr. Ortiz, Alfredo, shout out to you. Um, his, uh, what was it? Systems thinking. I took a system thinking course. It was a short, I think it was a weekend workshop, three days. And we decided, or it was decided to do a wicked problem assessment and water was chosen. So we had, they had people coming in from, they had, uh, growers so from a wine vineyard to, I think folks in the council and different folks speak about it. And one of the things that I remember that they said about the desalinization plants is that it's it's a sexy solution. It sounds cool. And it's an easy thing to focus on so that we don't have to change the way things are now. So, oh, we'll just desalinate. There's all that water out there. They also talked about how expensive that is and all the effort that goes into that. Um, you know, like something like, um, this is a funny example, but I love almond milk. I stopped drinking real milk a long time ago, and I was like, went to soy milk and then almond milk. I thought, wow, almond milk, cool. And then I found out, damn, almonds take so much water to produce, like a ridiculous amount of gallons for like 16 almonds. And then, of course, because of the profit margin, then in California, they're just like choosing to do that grow that and then you think of monocropping and all this and I see those documentaries on Netflix rotten and the bees and the insects like damn it 
<laughs> I can't be, you know, I look at the almond milk now and I think I see a skull and crossbones on it. I'm like, oh, no more almond milk. So the idea of like it was great, it's healthy, it's a better alternative to, to milk. And so I can still have my smoothies and whatever I drink right. with milk. But look at the cost over there. So you did the systems thinking. Ah, uh, is that what I did just now? <laughs> Almond milk. <laughs> you reanalyzed it. Like, uh, uh, nope. All right, this is Gabe. I'm here with Janelle Still, and we are about to talk to you about International Women's Day. Janelle, what is Miss doing to celebrate International Women's Day? Hi, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Uh, Miss is hosting a film festival and panel discussion. The film is called Sufra, and it's about women in a refugee camp in southern Lebanon. Um, this film festival is really to celebrate women, uh, refugees, and their achievements, and the life that they've created uh, in this refugee camp. They've lived their entire lives there. And so we're hosting a screening of this film and raising money for them. That's amazing. And I heard that one of our very own will be speaking on this panel. Can You're you tell me correct. more? correct. Yes. Anab Mohammed. She's a second semester. Uh, international policy and development student and she will be speaking on the panel with two other women that's really exciting yeah. I can't wait to hear what she has to say me too so when is this event can you tell me exactly where and when we can attend this is Friday March 8th 7 p.m. at Irvine Auditorium but doors are at 630 yes come show up at 630 come a little early I mean this is we have a lot of community organizations involved as well probably four of them and the Muslim Student Alliance here at Miss is also involved, so the word is out. Get there early, get your seats. This is going to be a well-attended event, I can tell. Yes. So you got to get there early, make sure you get as close as you can to the front. It's like a rock concert, folks. All right, Janelle, thank you very much. We'll have another message to relay the importance of International Women's Day coming up soon. Until then, Friday, March 8th, 6.30 p.m., Irvine Auditorium. Thanks, Gabe. Thank you, Janelle. Okay, so with, with stopping there at the at, at the refocus on the current infrastructure that we have, um, and then a question that I got posed by my roommate, she goes to here, shout out to Catherine McKinney. Catherine, woo! <laughs> she, uh, she's, she's an outsider looking in. Uh, she's from Canada, but like she has a great perspective on providing different outlooks on the way we think about things, talk about reframing something. And one thing I asked I was this morning, I was like, hey, I'm about to do this podcast. Uh, is there any questions, any burning desire? Because um, she's taking a course where she's working with Kent Blinzer. And, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so like their group focus is on homelessness, and they're trying to come up with uh, advocating strategy to, you know, uh, reach out to the community and understand the issues and, you know, produce some sort of deliverable uh, policy recommendation um, to the city or just to the to the inner location that we are in now. And um, one thing that she brought up to me is like, well, we, we already have like enough housing to go around. It's just that, you know, it, it costs the, the, the cost of living here. That's like the elephant in the room, right? Mm. And we, we look at situations where in Pacific Grove, in New Monterey, where folks have these homes and they're not occupying that space. Or they have these vacation spots to where they lend out right. uh, for ridiculous amounts of money. And, you know, that, that has a lot to do with the economics of this 
this locale and um, you know certain things that are out of our control but how much are they out of our control how much uh, is it just you know she's just like we have homeless people why don't we put the homeless people in homes how how difficult can that be in the sense of you know lowering mm -hmm. costs providing incentives for folks to invest in the obligations that need to be filled there's um okay there's a lot of things there and that's a great topic for that class um one thing that i want to i spoke with that class i've been talking to kent he wanted to see if there's a way that i can get involved with them through mbap or something and i just had an idea for the students of that class um there's a development in Chinatown in Salinas. Uh, Midpen is the, the nonprofit developer that's going to build it. It's a mixed-use building, um, four stories. So the first floor is retail, and then you have three or four stories of housing, all affordable, from from I think from free to like very very low cost. Um, and all the folks there, um, is for um, folks on the street that they're going to get has what you know it's called wraparound services so they'll have a case manager a caseworker they'll have uh, job training mental health services a lot of things like that it's it seems like an ideal place and i can give them all the information on that and even so a guy that i know luis is in charge of making sure that that gets set up and he's overseeing that he told me every tuesday i can drop by and take a tour of the place because now you're actually seeing the building starting to come up. If you look at the rendering of it, you know, it was uh, they tore down these old buildings in the Chinatown and Salinas, and then I just saw the flat land, and then I saw the picture of what it was going to look like. It's like a U shape, there's a courtyard inside. They got local artists that are going to do murals. I mean, they thought about all this great stuff greenery, art. They really want to re wanted to revitalize that area of Salinas as well. And there's a lot of discussion that people have about some people have doubts that. Maybe the you know there's still going to be local drug dealers there that are going to mess up the place and all that. There's a lot of discussion about that, but the place itself, everything that I read about, it's exciting. Tons like 90, 90 um, units. Wow. Now, so to the class, I'd offer let's. That's a good thing that that's a good uh, case to look at to inform them in as they're working to learn about homeless and develop a policy recommendation. In terms of we already have enough houses. Like with food, you know, we've heard that there's enough food in the world to feed everybody. It's not about the quantity of food. It's the way we have it distributed, the systems that are in place, etc. Here, we, we don't have enough. We just do not have the supply. Right. But to her point, to your point, Catherine, we're not maximizing what we have right now. So some of the examples you gave about people have this property and it's empty most of the time. They just sort of rent it out a couple of days or Airbnb it and then just sits there. There's people that are retired. Let's say, let's say they have a three or four bedroom house. They have this plot of land and they're empty nesters. Or maybe, you know, there's one person there, maybe um, a lady, her kids left, graduated, went to school, all that stuff. And now she's, you know, older and has her place. It's just her and this big house. And, but it's too expensive and complicated for her to move. So she's staying there, but now you have all this space that's not being used. One of the things that um, Habitat for Humanity Monterey Bay has a program on ADUs, accessory, accessory dwelling units or granny units, those little houses that you can build on your yard or in your backyard, is 
they have a very great program that they're implementing in Santa Cruz County. And I'm working with David Foster, the executive director. Uh, he wants to help bring that out here to Salinas. And we've convened this group of folks in Salinas, the city folk, uh, folks from um, United Way, David Foster from Habitat for Humanity, AMBEP, um, to figure out how to get ADUs as a way to help this, meaning if we can facilitate the construction of an ADU. Now this lady, um, there's assistance, there's a way to um, ease the regulations, but keep everything safe. She can build this small shelter on her yard and she could either rent it out, so now she has supplemental income and now can house another person. So there's the same plot of land as another person or she decides to move into it says, well, I don't need this much space. I'll move into my little house that I built, and I'll rent out my big house, and now you can house a family there or more people, a group of students. And now she makes extra income, and now all of a sudden you brought more people that needed a place to stay in what's already existing, the same plot of land. And so uh, Habitat for Humanity has a great way of, you know, they have a system of getting volunteers and what they use, what they call sweat equity to help in the construction costs. And this is where cities and or counties can help with infrastructure and easing regulations. Now, a lot of people, and we know this, are already doing that with their garages. And you have families living in garages. And a lot of those stuff are either they're not legal and or they're unsafe. They're, they're red flag. Yeah. They're not sustainable. So there's also an idea of how can we do it where you either construct. There, there's three phases of this. You construct a new house and a new ADU. You have a house and add an ADU to it. Or you, you have a house that has an ADU already, but that it's, re, you know, um, tagged, meaning there's, like, violations with electricity or something. How do we and then bring that to a safe, you know, to safety standards? And those are the basic three buckets in which we can work with what's already existing. So okay. on top of adding more. So we have to throw every tool, everything at this uh, housing crisis, every kitchen sink at it. Yeah, there's this. That reminds me of a, a quote by uh, this guy. He um, quote by this guy. Guy yeah. in the street. Great quote. <laughs> Buckminster. <laughs> Buckminster Fuller, uh, who was a gentleman back in the '70s who had built like this geodistic dome. It was the first of its kind. Oh yeah. And um, he he has this quote that just it always brings me back when when you're talking about dealing with the current models of, of construction, of building, of just our realities and the conditions uh, that that are given to us, you know, in the current moment. You, you look at housing advocacy right now in front of me on the screen and how best to communicate that message, how best to reallocate your resources and all your efforts towards reshaping, uh, you know, what you see in front of you, you know. Like, yeah. And so the quote goes, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So it mm. kind of builds on this notion um, that, you know, everybody has to earn a living. And what does that look like, you know? Uh, and, and what kind of work do you want to lead uh, with your life and not only with your own life but you know if you have a family if you have close associations good friends um it also reminds me of like building or like uh 
sewing uh, a tree into whose shade you know you won't be able to sit in. You know, so mm. like for for future generations to really have a situation where you deal with an issue in front of you, um, and you look at it as as an obligation, as a effort in which you know there is avenues to really uh, carve out something that's 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 meaningful. You know, um, I was taking a supply chain course last night and uh, with Professor Hope. And he he's good friends with uh, Samuel Adams, you know the beer company. The beer guy, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he's good friends with the owner, and he was talking to the owner one night. Does the owner dress like the Sam Adams in the bottle? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he was talking to him uh, years ago, and he was talking about success in in the business world, and he was he was telling the professor how that like you know the minute Samuel Adams beer company struck gold and we became successful I lost my family and mm. I ended up in a divorce you know and luckily now he's in you know a second marriage and everything's fine but at what cost do we lead our lives and what it is that we're doing on a daily basis yeah. and yeah. Um, you know to, to, to promote you know sound housing policy to voice your approval of housing developments and to really break down these barriers um, kind of not only shakes the culture, but also restructures how we think about holistic approaches, like you started in the very beginning. Holistic approaches to the everyday worker um, living from the valley to the tourism industry, you know, and how best can we provide some relief for those folks? Um, because we're living in a... a in a situation where it seems to be like a crisis and it seems to be like there's no wiggle room, you know, with, with, you know, paying 15, $20 for a meal, <laughs> you know, yeah. coming from Texas, I'm just like, Oh man, that's right. <laughs> how, how is it? You know, I was talking to professor Murphy about that too. And he was like, what's it going to take uh, for the cost of these things to, to, to lower themselves and he's like it's gonna be a market correction of some sort um i hear that uh but <laughs> i mean i hear that said a lot yeah uh i don't know where <laughs> really to take well, that but um, there, there's a you know like today in the discussion this morning a lot of the things that affect the equation are outside of the scope of a particular plan or group of organizations or companies, right. meaning um, wages being what they are, given the cost of living, where does that come from? So, though you know, again, the, the math. I always hear business people say, "Well, the math doesn't work. I can't build it unless I make the you know numbers have to work. What I have to pay and all this, it, it doesn't work if it costs that, or if I have to build a certain amount of affordable housing or whatever." You know, and someone else was saying this morning about. You know, she said, luxury, what was before luxury now are requirements. And I think uh, she was referring to when you build a house, something like solar panels are now required or um, things, I guess, the quality of certain material that's going to be more expensive for countertops or for floors or amount of space or things that she said before were luxuries, now they're 
considered basic needs and that's a place that's going to make it more expensive and so again i didn't she didn't specify too much but it i'm looking at your face i'm thinking yeah i had the same like you know hmm, what do you mean so are we going back to like let's just give them the i know you're not saying let's give them four walls and a roof but what luxury what was considered a luxury before it made me think of a something i saw on fox news a couple of years ago or maybe a little longer where they were saying Look at people now. Look at, they say they're poor, but look, they have a refrigerator, they have a smartphone, they have, and I thought, yeah, that's, they have a microwave. I go, yeah. Like having a cell phone now is not, you know, you see someone with a cell phone back in the day, you're like, whoa, look, you thought either they were a business person or a drug dealer, right? Well, which is also a business person, I guess. <laughs> Some things don't change. <laughs> but uh, now you don't think of someone, you see someone with a cell phone, you don't go, ooh, wow. They must have a, a Mercedes. It must be something. No, it's, you don't even blink. Um, so I felt like maybe the standards, just because something was considered a luxury before and now it's standard, I don't feel like it meant people are getting something luxurious. I think, you know, some correction of like, okay, finally, let's let them have some of these things. But the math there, just not to get sidetracked with that, but the idea being that if they say we should cut, we can cut down those costs to make the numbers work, I go, but the numbers for the people also have to work. What they make, their wages have to work for, you know, their home economy, their kids, their family, their lifestyle. And when I say lifestyle, it just means like being able to, like you, you're a student, you're thinking, I can't afford $20 meals all the time. Um, or other or this rent right right so that's what I, when I mean lifestyle I just mean like your rent and your eating and and yeah you should be able to go to the movies and take a weekend trip and stuff like that um, but the numbers have to work and so the developer or the business person can say well that's not that's for county or that's the government the government can be yeah but we have this and we have a budget and this and the laws are, so the problem keeps like deferring where does so. it go where is this is it outside of who controls wages and i know it's not like necessarily one person controlling wages but where are the influences of what wages are and who gets tax breaks and who doesn't or what things are taxed more at what what kind of income what kind of thing all this stuff can be outside of the scope of the work of, of a nonprofit or of a county uh, government a certain business so what MBEP does is we work with all these entities to create some regulatory reform to create uh, we advocate for certain policies as well as uh, developments that bring housing you know more stock at all levels market rate and workforce affordable low income very low income all that um, and that's what I like about it because it's not only layered, but it's working with the ecosystem. And there's a book called New Localism, which I'd recommend to read. And I think it's right up the alley of a lot of missed students of how the solutions are coming from local entities, you know, businesses, jurisdictions, nonprofits, advocacy groups, community members, um, all working together and developing new models of how to do things, which speaks to your quote of the guy. This guy has a quote, no. <laughs> Buck, Buckminster Fuller, right? Um, which I like, where he said, you can challenge, don't challenge directly, like the status quo, or the, he said, produce something new, and that they put it beside it, where all of a sudden people go like, oh, why the hell are we doing this? Look at this thing. 
is that I more or less get the gist yeah. of. Yeah, oh yeah. That's so uh, New Localism, um, I'd recommend that book. Uh, In Defense of Housing was another book I mentioned. Uh, there's a couple others I'd like to recommend that are coming to mind. But I like this idea of producing something innovative, something that addresses the issue, and put it beside what we have and go have people look and, oh, why are we doing that? Look at this. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez is doing some of that. I think a lot of that, Bernie Sanders, um, trying to think of... There's the, a zeitgeist movement of, you know, collective action, yeah. of the collective mind, and collective states of consciousness coming together to where it's as if you see, you know, on an individual basis, for me even, you know, uh, there are moments of doubt. There are moments of true just like I throw up my hands and I'm just like, okay, there's nothing I can do here, right? And, and then it reminds me of when I was in DPMI with Beryl Levinger, um, she was communicating to us that, you know, as an individual, you know, I have so much experience dating back to, you know, 60s and 70s within the nonprofit world. And, you know, I also, you know, went to such and such university and I have this collective knowledge and wisdom in my field, but none of it sur surpasses uh, the collective wisdom and knowledge and experience if you add up all the people in this room. And there must have been 25, 30 folks in the room uh, for this DPMI session. And what that brought me to understanding is, is no matter who you talk to, um, at what level of their socioeconomic status, they have a story. They have something that can teach you and you can learn. And by doing so, by opening up um, and listening and hearing what you have to say and just seeing how you're creating a new model right now, you know, brings me back to the individual state where I'm hearing that. I'm just like, oh, it's not as abysmal as everyone makes it sound out to be. That we're actually, you know, there are certain hurdles, of course, like anything in life. But um, it's like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, like, sufficient to the day of, a, of the worry of it all. You know, uh, we'll always have something to worry about, you know. Um, but what can we do in a moment you know, you're, you're meeting with folks this morning. We're talking about it right now. This is reaching to whoever has the capacity to listen. And when they hear that, they know that there are eligible activities. Uh, there are avenues of thought that are worth exploring and actions that are being taken right now effectively. You know, Jesus was a straight-up Buddha. He, I mean, <laughs> he was talking was that Zen, in the moment, martial arts stuff. Um, one... Final a point I want to make about what we're talking about is um, my concern is also who has access and opportunity mm. to do what Buckminster Fuller did, to be able to access networks, social networks, economic networks, knowledge networks, to not only develop and enhance their minds and their talents, uh, and to be able to produce an innovation next to the status quo. And it's hard to do that if you're living, you know, paycheck to paycheck and trying to make ends meet and all that thing. So uh, equity is key in this because who are the decision makers and people in power that 
created stuff, this, you know, the infrastructure and the systems that have us where we are, who are the people that are going to save us, quote unquote, um, what does that demographic look like, not only uh, racially and gender wise, but economically, socioeconomically, what's, where are they coming from? And, you know, there was a, one of the things that I always heard about was, um, you know, the generic critique of uh, having women being presidents and leaders of nations and, and stuff like that. We still don't, haven't had a female president in this country, but one of the generic critiques was like, well, if women were in charge, um, you know, they would start wars because uh, they're hormonal, whatever, whatever, right? All that stuff, all that nonsense. And then you think, okay, I hear what you're saying, yeah. Meanwhile, every single war that's been started, who started those? So, you know, male, female. Uh, so looking at who's got access to not only the questions but the answers, who's producing them, who's creating the frameworks in which we're all discussing and debating and voting things on. Um, so that, you know, all that stuff is great. Um, just want to make sure that there's equity, which there isn't, I believe, of minds and talents. Everywhere, you know, you have brilliant people, potential people that are going to cure cancer, that are going to cure the economic cancers, that bring help with the housing crisis, all these things. But if they're only coming from certain areas because of the way things are set up, and I'm talking about all the different, you know, quote-unquote categories in our demography, in our demographics, that's, uh, we're limiting ourselves as well as, as being unjust and being unequitable. So that's always a point about when I hear about, you know, like the lean forward and things like that, like, yes, but who can lean? Who's that, you know, whole, you're, you know, you've heard about that where right. uh, pull up yourself by the bootstraps. And we always heard that. What if you don't have bootstraps? Like, what if you're wearing huaraches? What if you're, <laughs> you know, barefoot? You know, I think uh, Michael Ferranti has a line in a song that says, you can, I can walk a mile in your shoes. You can walk a mile in my bare feet. So, uh, and then the, another point um, before I forget, um, and it, it's kind of related, but you said, about the Samuel Adams guy, that he lost it all, at least at the beginning, um, how f and he posed the question, how far are you willing to go for success? At what costs does success come from? And I thought about that because there's a friend of mine who, he, had, he has opportunities to make a lot of money. And I said, wow, you know, we're talking and he was telling me about his business. I said, that's good, yeah. And then I said, this, this, and this. And you can even double that. And he said, yeah, yeah well, I'm not yet. I mean, right now, I want to be super dad. Because like that, that's going to sacrifice time with his family, with his kids and his wife. And I thought, exactly. I got, when I was talking about it, I was just thinking about the business itself. And he said, mm, maybe in time. Right now, I have enough. I have just enough, plenty, with work. But I still want to be able to take my kids to the dentist, the game, to hang out with my wife, to, you know, do that. And I thought, that's right. There's value there. And so he was really understanding that balance of the cost of things. Money is one thing, but the cost of producing that extra money. You know, time. There's time and there's energy and quality of life there. Yeah. So this little um, fortune cookie uh, wisdom that we can pick up from people. And to Beryl's point about the stories, um, one of the things that we do at MBEF when we have our housing one-on-one sessions, and this I learned from Matt Huerta, shout out, he's like my, not only my dear friend, but he's like my mentor, guru, and on all this stuff. Um, and just like the downest 
person down as the vato, down as human being that uh, that you can meet, one of them top there, you know, top person. He always starts, he taught me about starting these things with housing stories. I was like, housing story? It's like everyone has a housing story. And I started thinking about like what that is. And I, and I came up with a few of them as I would go to these sessions. So, for example, um, I'll start and see if you can think of a housing story and we'll share. Um, one housing story that I, that I thought about was because of um, the instability that uh, that we were in, um, you know, economically. That's why I relate to a lot of folks here. I remember we were living in a van for a little while, and so my parents, you know, they parked the van near the school so that I can walk to it. Um, and I remember being embarrassed walking out because I, I'd, I'd open the door and you kind of peek out. It's like, okay, let me. See run out really quickly before any students who are walking will see me. And then I'd run out of, and try to sort of get on the street and sort of blend into that stream of students. Um, but I was very, I didn't mind living in the van itself. It's funny, like we were together, so I didn't mind that. I was just aware of being embarrassed. And I remember if you have to go pee in the middle of the night and you're, you know, my mother or my father would have to take me outside and pee on, you know, somewhere out in the back of the van or somewhere. And, but the story there is that they wanted to keep me going to the school that they felt was a good school. Um, so that was a trade-off. Like going to the school, keep, to not destabilize my schooling and, and shift to another school and move to another place that maybe they could afford at the time. But this, you know, have us move to another school and all of a sudden, you know, do that thing. So they wanted to, you know, I give them so much love for what they had to sacrifice. It must have been so hard for them to see their kids sleeping like that. Um, but they, you know, they were able to work things out and, and, you know, stabilize us. But I appreciate that they kept that home feeling because I never really cared. I mean, I just felt embarrassed. So it's funny how those social things still affect you. Um, but they wanted to keep us at the school and, uh, and it did and, um, you know, give them thanks for that. But that's why I can understand people now that are living that way and how they think about their kids. I go, man. I, I feel you, and so when I hear like someone resist a housing development that's going to help get people out of those situations, because they say, "Well, if you build another store, it's going to block my view," or this building, it's out of character, it's not in line with the character of this neighborhood. That da 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 da, and these kinds of things. I'm thinking, wow, or we can build a you know something else here, I mean, we, you know, a community center or something. I mean, community centers are great. Um, but you know what I mean? Some people have this situation. What do we do with them? And so that's, that's how I think about this. And that's sort of my housing story. Uh, one of my housing stories. I don't know if you thought of something you want to share something. Yeah. I mean, I mean, first off, thank you for sharing that, that, I mean, that's mind blowing to think that, um, one of the things that first comes to mind is, is, you know, when we create, uh, when we when we make sacrifices, we're creating opportunities uh, at the same time. It's this beautiful cycle where you see with your parents, they're making the sacrifice to create an opportunity for you in your life. And that's direct impact, you know. And there's so many different things to where, you know, when you poke at life, something else is going to pop out the other end. And that's, mm. I think for me, has been the most critical uh, vantage point 
of, of learning uh, just through direct experience. Having that direct felt experience of being able to um, know where I can't I came from and it kind of helps me know where I'm going mm. you know and it creates a, a vision for me that widens my abilities my capabilities and my capacity to do more and when you increase people's capacity you know by making the sacrifice that you're making by the work that you do you're increasing other people's capacity to not only think about their day-to-day -day activities about just making it, just surviving, but looking at you know um, housing first initiatives uh, that were done in Utah. One of the mm. biggest things that came out of that was like if we just put people in homes, they won't have to think about you know feeding themselves for the day. They can actually you know shower, shave, get ready, and maybe apply to that job. You know, finally after all this time and. To increase that capacity, you know, um, it reminds me of my housing story that precedes my birth, but like my mom always tells it around Christmas time. And uh, there was a moment where my parents, um, they just, like when they first moved into their housing, I forget where in California, but uh, they had a situation where they didn't have furniture, so my mom would go out and find like cardboard boxes and they were just mm. laid on the floor, and uh, that was that was their space for a time. Um, and at some point, like around Christmas time, they're just eating, you know, uh, beans and tortillas and living life with my two older brothers, twins. Uh, and uh, it was around Christmas time, and you know they were strapped for cash. And uh, my mom, she. <laughs> My my brothers, God bless them. They 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 were so young they didn't realize. But my what my mom did what did uh, she she wrapped like uh, a papa you know in some like really nice wrapping paper or something, and she would wrap like uh, some some strawberries or something like that or some socks that you know they already owned, and she wanted them to celebrate Christmas still, with mm -hmm. only the limited things that they had. Um, but that increased their capacity for joy. That, mm. that increased their capacity to be fulfilled. Um, and so restructuring how we look at you know concurrent situations uh, is is being able to like look outside of ourselves. Um, and, and my mom taught me that. Your parents taught you that. And it. It brings us back, you know, when whenever we're studying or looking at something or we're working our nine to five and we're just like, ah, you know, how am I going to be able to get out of this situation to where I can feel like I'm impacting the world, where I'm leaving something meaningful, not only for myself, but for my family and for all the people around me. And one of the biggest things is, is kind of to direct that energy and that focus towards reshaping the culture um, just with what you're doing um, and uh, yeah that, that is how you build community you know um, by increasing that capacity um, and it may not seem effective at first but I think you chip away at it one day at a time um, you'll s sort of see the progress you know it's a it's a marathon for sure. <laughs> Not a sprint. Yeah, I mean, 
it, it it behooves me to consider, you know, working on these issues because it's happening. It's something that's real, um, and it has it has meaning not only for myself but like living in the Bay Area, growing up there, um, and it all coming full circle. Mm. Looking into the valley and the workers out there, and thinking of my grandfather, thinking of my aunts and uncles who worked those same fields. Um, it provides great meaning to my life um, to be able to serve a community that served me um, to some capacity. And you find that connection, I think. Yeah. It enriches not only your life, but the people that uh, you're working with. Yeah. Um, there's maybe we'll wrap it up and we can maybe continue the, I'd love to continue the conversation and uh, explore other things. But you made me think about uh, this uh, Father Greg Boyle. He's a founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. I did some volunteer work for them before and really was inspired by the work they were doing. Um, he talked about kinship. And this is something that I thought a lot about when I was here at Miss. And I think the reason why I bring it up is like you made me feel that that's what you're getting at is the sense of kinship with one another. He talked about how the, the kinship is like mutuality. And he says, our compassion isn't measured by our service to those on the margins, but by our ability to see ourselves in kinship with them, you know, mutuality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a key thing that I've always saw, that it's, it's easy to help people. It's easy to collaborate, to integrate, to coordinate. I mean, easy enough, but to feel oneness to feel that a sense of kinship that i think is a key thing that is how do you teach it it's not taught and maybe it comes from a sense of empathy but something else it's part spiritual part social part um i don't know and i always work with what is a sense of kinship you know there's a, a max van heef He's a Chilean, he's an economist from Chile originally. He teaches in Berkeley. And he, he's, uh, his book is called Barefoot Economics. There's another book I recommend, Barefoot Economics. Max Van Heef, I believe that's it. And he talked about where he was in India doing some research and he was in a field with a worker. And, you know, the worker's situation was really dire. Well, you know, he was in poverty. And he looked at him and he thought, how do I, everything I've studied, how do I look at him and tell him, hey, the, you though, you should cheer up though because you're, the nation's GDP just rose by X percentage and the poverty line, you know, this percentage of people crossed over it. And he said that meant nothing here at this level. And he felt like everything he's learned about economics up until that point, he thought everything I've learned in school does nothing in this case. It, it's not, he didn't feel like it instructed or educated him to address these issues and barefoot economics. Um, so I felt like right there he was starting to feel a sense of kinship and go, ah, eliminating all, you know, yes, I've studied, I have these degrees, I'm a PhD, economics, all these things. And yet, what does that do? And when he started to feel a sense of kinship, I'm, you know, imagining that from what he said. And you should YouTube him too. Um, it, it made him relook at his life and what he studied and then he went this other direction. So... That's, yeah, I think um, 
the other day I was at uh, I was at a gas station and I was pumping gas and I had I'd like you know ninety nine problems in my mind <laughs> um, and so I was in my head and you know how like sometimes you're in your head and you're like okay and you're looking at the time damn I got to do this and the time and so my face was reflecting probably that I was in my head and looking at the time and. I was um, outside my passenger door. He was on the other side of the gas, where the gas cap was. So dividing us was the tube from the gas, uh, what's it called? You know, when you pump the gas, the, the gas pump. So there was like this sort of like a velvet cord thing, like what you get the what cordons off and clubs or whatever right. between us. So he's, he said, hey, sir, how you doing? It was a young man, young black man with dreads. And he said, hey, sir. And I kind of heard him, but, I, you know, again, I was in my head. And then I, I, I think I looked toward him, and my face must have reflected discomfort and angst because that's what I was feeling. <laughs> I was like, damn, how did I figure this out? And looking at the time, and I got to get out of here, and there's all this traffic, and da da da, on top of that. And he, so he said, hey, and he put his hands up like a, like, you know, don't shoot position, like, hey, no, don't, I don't mean to scare you. And then when he said that, I looked at him, and I kind of thought, young black man because he said i just got out of prison and then he, he then he said hey don't worry don't be scared and he put his hands up like in that hands up position and then when i saw him i thought uh, and he looked like uh he lived in the street perhaps so i thought young black man mentioned prison and the way he's looking the way he's dressed and then he said don't don't mean to scare you and then i thought about all this stuff about all oh, right this is the dangerous person in our society the evil black man the what all this so when he said that i thought it snapped me out of where I was, and I thought, shit, I don't want to contribute to, to that, to reinforcing, like, oh, he approached me with a big distance. Like, he knows I scare people just by how I look. So he approached me cautiously, put his hands up, like, I'm not dangerous, and even said it, don't mean to scare you. And that sobered me up, pulled me, and I looked, I, all, that thing fla all that flashed in my head, pulled out the 99 problems out of my head. And I walked straight to him, walked over the tube of the gas pump, and walked right in front of him and put my hands out just like on my sides, like kind of opening up my body, my body language. And I said, hey, sorry, um, my name is Rafael. And he said, oh, my name's Robert. And then we shook hands. And then, I, and then it kind of like, yeah, yeah, can I help you? <laughs> and then he, you know, and then we talked. And it was, you know, was those kinds of moments. Now, again, there's different things. I don't, you know, there's, there is real safety issues for just strangers and blah, blah, blah. I know that. But I'm just, the essence of the story was all these things I felt like pulled me out of my moment, my own bubble of issues and thoughts and preoccupations. And I realized that I was, you know, mistaking him for an interruption. And he was a person. And, you know, it's understandable on my part, but I snapped out of it, went up, and wanted to find that kinship of like, hey, well, let's start with my name. My name is Rafael. Let me greet you through this ritual where we shake hands that we have in our society. We have a shared value, something. Okay, now let's go from there. Oh, your name, your name Robert. Cool. We know each other's names. They both start with R. Let's, let's go. We both speak English. You know, whatever. Let's, and there's connections, connections. And then, um, and so I don't know... <laughs> The value of the story is just um, the idea of kinship and that moment. And then I left and I never saw him again. I don't know if I'll ever see him again in my life, but there's all these moments in our lives. And I reflect on that to think, okay, thank you, Robert, for just, you know, reminding me of kinship. And even though I had to go back to my issues and figure that out, I had a moment where there's a person, I'm connected to these people, whether I know them or not, because we live in our society and we, we cross each other maybe once in our lives but you have one grain of sand 
in my life of my beach, my life that's a beach. Well, that makes it sound like my life is a beach. But like the <laughs> sand dune of my life, you are at least a grain of sand in there, at least for now. And that matters. That, that's part of me. That's a cell in my composition. That which is in you is also in me. So I respect you. Ah, namaste. 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 <laughs> uh, you um, are the other me. I am the other you. The Mayan saying. Exactly. Exactamente. Angelo, man, gracias. Oh, man. It's we'll keep pleasure. it going. We'll keep it going. Next time, I'm going to come some rhymes. <laughs> come some rhymes. Oh, bring some oh, happy times. Yes. Get some flows up in here. Get some flows up the in good here. Vibes. Get the vibes. Get rid of the fear. Become a tribe. Then drink some beers. Drink some beers. <laughs> and continue our diet tribe. Eso. Eso. Gracias, hermano. <laughs>